Welcome to The Free Will Show. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor Sear. And I'm your other host, Matt Plummer. In a previous episode, we discussed the problem of luck for libertarians. In this episode, we discussed the problem of moral luck, which is a problem for every view of freedom and responsibility. Our guest in this episode is Dana K. Nelkin. And as always, if you have questions for us that you'd like us to address in our Q&A episode, which is coming up next, feel free to get in touch with us via social media at The Free Will Show or through our website, thefreewillshow.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Well, I'm happy to introduce our guest today, who is Dana K. Nelkin. Dana is professor of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and an affiliate professor at the University of San Diego School of Law. She's written many articles on free will and moral responsibility, as well as on other issues in moral psychology and the philosophy of law. She's the author of a book called Making Sense of Freedom and Responsibility, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. And she's the co-editor of three books, The Ethics of Law... The Ethics and Law of Omissions, The Oxford Handbook of Moral Responsibility, and Forgiveness, New Essays, all published or forthcoming with Oxford University Press. So thanks so much for joining us, Dana. Would you start by telling us and our audience a little bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on free will? Uh, Sure. So uh, first, thanks so much to both of you for having me and for that really nice introduction. Um, So... As, as you mentioned, Taylor, I, I work in a set of interrelated areas, uh, moral psychology, ethics, philosophy of law, metaphysics, epistemology, and bioethics. Um, and I think actually my interest in free will largely explains how I came to work in all these different areas. Uh, working on free will just takes you into a whole range of human concerns, and I've felt very fortunate to have the chance to pursue all these different kinds of questions. Um, let's see, the, the the short story of how I became interested in working on free will uh, starts in graduate school. Um, and I was reading a bunch of books and articles, thinking about what I wanted to write my dissertation on. And I got very taken with the idea that we have this strong conception of ourselves as free and responsible beings. So when we make a decision to take a job, to join the military, to attend a protest, it it feels to us as though we're free. And the question that really grabbed me was, what gives rise to this feeling? Is it because we're beings who make decisions? Um, Is it because we think about the reasons for and against our options that we somehow have to see ourselves as free? And I, I, I guess I got I got pretty obsessed with this question. I wrote my my dissertation about it. And um, the ultimate motivation, I think, was to vindicate the idea that this sense of ourselves as free beings is not an illusion, that we really are free. And I guess I've been in one form or another working on that ever since. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. So we've already devoted an episode to the problem of luck for libertarian views of of freedom and responsibility. But moral luck seems to pose a different kind of problem that is a problem for all different kinds of views of responsibility. So could you explain a little bit about what moral luck is? Sure. So moral luck happens when the extent to which a person is morally blameworthy or praiseworthy or deserving of good or bad things, when, when how, how blameworthy or praiseworthy they are depends in large part on factors outside the control of the person, or in other words, 
when that's a matter of luck. So that's that's what moral luck is. And maybe it's best to illustrate it with a, an example. So consider two people who try to commit a murder. Um, they're equally skilled and they both take aim with a gun from a similar distance from their targets. One hits the target and kills the, uh, the, the victim. The other one fails, but only because at the moment that he shoots, a bird flies into the path of the bullet, taking it off course. Hmm. So in this situation, I think a lot of people blame the one who succeeds more than the one who fails. We tend to blame people more when they actually cause harm than when they don't. Mm -hmm. Lots of people blame the one who succeeds uh, more than the one who fails. Uh, we very often blame people more when they cause harm than when they don't. Um, but but if that differential blame accurately reflects that they're really blameworthy to different degrees, then that would be a case of moral luck. And that's because it was just a matter of luck. It's not in the control of these people whether the world cooperates in their schemes. So for all that they had control over, they did the same things. It's just that... Um, Luckily or unluckily, depending on your point of view, one person succeeds and one person fails. Um, so that that would be moral luck if, in fact, uh, these two people really are differentially blameworthy, even though the the only difference between them seems to be a matter of something not in their control. And the reason that there's a so-called problem of moral luck, um, and you're absolutely right, I think this applies to everyone um, compatibilists, incompatibilists uh, alike. Um, the reason that it's a problem is because on the one hand, it just seems that people can only be responsible or accountable for what's in their control. Um, that's sometimes, this idea is sometimes known as the control principle. And that just seems like a really strong kind of principle. Um, but on the other hand, we often don't seem to stick to that principle when we re react to particular cases. Um, like we do tend to blame murderers more than those who merely attempt it um, and, and so on. Uh, yeah, so that's, the, that's, that's one way of seeing the, the, the problem of moral luck is just that you have this apparent conflict between something very intuitive, this idea that you can only be accountable or praiseworthy or blameworthy for your what's in your control. And on the other hand, we seem not to stick to that principle in particular cases. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So the case of the, the attempted murder and the, and the, the successful murder is very interesting. Um, Thomas Nagel famously distinguished between several different kinds of uh, moral luck. He called them resultant, circumstantial, constitutive, and causal moral luck. Um, would you want to explain some of these other types of moral luck and give some examples along the way? Sure, sure. So that that first one is a is an example of resultant moral luck because it looks like it's the result of what you've intended to do um, that somehow makes a difference to the moral judgment we make. Um, and I should just note that um, one other case, if that's okay, of resultant luck. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. They, they don't all have to be cases where people are intending to do something. So um, negligence cases also pose this a similar problem. Um, to take one that maybe is kind of timely, um, uh, consider, take two people who 
in the in our current era of COVID-19, two people don't wear masks while they're at a party or while they're shopping at a store. And they don't intend to hurt anyone, but they're not wearing masks um, when they know what the risks are, suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and now suppose one of these people happens to have crossed paths with someone infected earlier, and so they are themselves contagious, and the other one is not. And so one passes along the virus to some vulnerable people and one doesn't. In these kinds of cases, if we think that the one who causes harm is more blameworthy, then there too we would be accepting a kind of moral resultant luck. So Hmm. that's just to say resultant luck can happen when you intend harm, or um, but it can also happen when you just uh, take risks through negligence, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that was, so that's resultant or outcome uh, luck. Those would be that uh, cases of that kind. Um, but right, there are these others as well. So uh, as Nagel pointed out, there luck comes into our lives everywhere. It really permeates <laughs> our lives. Um, so that's what makes this such a gripping and hard problem, I think. Um, yeah. So. There's also what's known as circumstantial luck. So what circumstances we find ourselves in also has a profound effect on whether we're rightly blamed or praised, it seems. Um, So just to take one example, I mean, two drivers might pass the same spot on the highway a few minutes apart. Um, Both of them, you know, they're well disposed. They would stop if, if there was an accident and people needed help. Um, but one of them just passes the spot. Nothing is going on. They get home after this uneventful drive home. Um, but the other passes a few minutes later right after a crash and heroically saves a victim. It looks like the timing of the crash wasn't in their control at all. Um, but we praise one and the other we don't praise at all. And mm-hmm. if that's if that's reflective of greater pra- praiseworthiness, it seems like luck has come into it just by what opportunities um, we have to act well or badly. So that would be circumstantial luck. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And this could go the other way too. And similar people in different circumstances. And instead of being praiseworthy, one of them is blameworthy. Exactly. Right. Right. Some of us have the opportunity to act really badly and others don't. And in fact, Nagel's Nagel's example was of that kind, or one powerful example he gives is of a, um, you know, two, two, two people born in Germany. Um, one of them, uh, uh, one of them stays in Germany during the rise of the Nazis and does horrible things, turns in his neighbors, you know, and they're, knowing they're going to the death camps um, Mm. and somebody else very similarly disposed. um, uh, His company happens to transfer him to Argentina, you know, 10 years before. So he misses the whole, the whole thing. He misses the opportunity to act so badly. Um, He has this nice, really uneventful life in Argentina. Um, But he would have done the same thing in the same circumstances. He just didn't have that opportunity to act so badly. So yeah, it's it can go both ways. Hmm. So that's those are cases of circumstantial luck, um, and if we again, if we think of them as differentially blameworthy or praiseworthy, then we seem to be accepting that kind of moral luck. 
Um, there's also, as Nagel pointed out, uh, constitutive luck. That's when um, uh, it's a matter of luck, just even who we are in many ways. So the circumstances we're born into, um, what sorts of resources are available to us, you know, who, who raises us, who educates us, what sorts of traits we develop when we're very young. Um, all these sorts of things are things, you know, just uncontroversially not in our control. Um, and so, and yet they seem, um, you know, incredibly important in contributing to who we are. And in turn, who we are and these sorts of um, traits that we start out with have profound effects on what situations we find ourselves in and what sorts of choices we make. Um, so, so that, that's, uh, that's a case of constitutive luck. Um, and then you, you mentioned also, uh, causal luck. I think the, the idea there is just that very generally we don't have control over the causes of our actions. Um, you might think causal luck in some way kind of absorbs both the situation or circumstantial and, uh, constitutive luck. Mm -hmm. Um, there, you know, the, the causes of how we come to, you know, be at a moment of choice, for example, are multifarious, but they, um, it looks like if, especially if you think that determinism true is true, but maybe even if indeterminism is true, frankly, um, but it looks like then you just weren't in control of any, any of the factors that, you know, brought you to this moment and, and caused your, your choice. So, um, so there too, you, you would be, if you were morally accessible one way or the other, but everything leading up to your choice was something you weren't in control of, then, um, that would also be a case of, of moral luck or a kind of moral luck. So I think Nagel even says in the article something like, oh, this is the problem of free will. We finally got there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So. Nice. All right. So before we ask you to discuss some proposed solutions to the, to the problem of moral luck, um, could you say a little bit more about just what the implications are of moral luck and, and what rests on, you know, coming to an answer to this problem? Sure, sure. So some, so... I mean, probably the first things you think of are just um, our interpersonal relations, the way we relate to each other, um, the the extent to which we blame and praise each other um, is dependent on what sorts of answers we give, whether we think people are, in fact, more praiseworthy when they cause harm than when they don't, for example, um, if, if we decide that's not true, it looks like maybe that will require quite a lot of revision in the way that we actually treat people, um, the kind of emotions we feel, the degree of resentment, um, all kinds of things might be at stake there. Um, but it also has implications um, in the law, uh, both criminal and tort law, I think, um, though I think it's been more discussed in the, in the criminal law. So many people 
take it, I think this is right, that the criminal law and criminal responsibility have at, at the very least significant parallels with moral responsibility. Um, on some views, you can only be criminally responsible if you're morally responsible, though that's somewhat more controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think here too, we just get the parallel problem. So it's sometimes called a problem of legal luck. Um, but in the law, typically, um, I think this is true in all United in all the states in the U.S., um, attempted murder gets a lower sentence than murder, even when everything else is the same, right. for yeah. example. Um, but a number of legal theorists think that that's not right, actually. And interestingly, the model penal code, which was this, it, it's a, a model set of laws that were written by a, a, a committee of the American Bar Association, and it's updated every now and then. Um, but in this model that they've given to states to look to when they are going to revise their laws, um, they they actually recommend that these different sentence, sentences between successful and attempted crimes be eliminated for for many crimes. So oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. 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 It's really it's really interesting. Um, so so that would be a, a huge, potentially huge revision in oh, yeah. in the way that the way that the criminal law, law um, operates. Um, and then I think there are also implications for distributive justice. So the debate about moral luck um, uh, has a place there too. So the question of distributive justice is really the question of how resources and opportunities. Um, goods, if you like, should be distributed across society. And according to a libertarian conception of distributive justice, for example, what the government should be doing is working to protect what people have or what's been passed down to them through inheritance. Um, And as long as there's no deception or coercion in the process of people acquiring what they have, the government's job is just to help them to keep it. Um, but some, notably um, uh, so-called luck egalitarians, uh, have replied to this kind of view by appealing to the control principle t- itself. Um, and what they say is that they point out people aren't in control of their starting points in life, um, whether they are advantaged or disadvantaged. Um, and so they don't deserve what they have, whether good or bad. So there's nothing wrong, goes this argument, with redistributing in an egalitarian way so that everybody has equal opportunities. So that's an interesting debate, I think, that um, where you see the appeal to the control principle and to the idea that, um, you know, you can't you can't be deserving of these good things that you have or deserving of the the bad um, things that you have um, if you have no control. that that plays a key part in this kind of argument for for egalitarianism. Thanks. That's very interesting. It's it's very interesting to see how many practical things depend on this seemingly theoretical problem. Right. Um, right. Yeah. 
so I, I meant to mention it earlier, but forgot to. Uh, you have written a very helpful entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on the topic of moral luck. And um, we'll link that in the show notes. But there you talk about three different types of response to moral luck. You call them denial, acceptance, and incoherence. So I was hoping if, if it's all right with you that you could talk through um, these one at a time and maybe say what they have going for them or whether you think they're plausible or not. Sure. Yeah. Glad to. So, um, so one response is to deny, um, that there really is moral luck. And I should say before I even go any further that, um, I think these strategies can be applied to some kinds. Um, they can either, you know, you can just deny that there's any kind of moral luck, or you could just deny that there's one kind of moral luck, but the other kinds will go ahead, will accept. So, um, so the, the landscape is actually mm, more complicated. Um, but the, the denial strategy, I think that's the most commonly applied in the case of outcome luck. Um, like the cases we started out talking about the cases of the successful murder and the attempted murder and the the two negligence cases. And there, there are various strategies here. One is to point out that in many real life cases, we actually, in, in real life, things are a lot messier than the kind of cases I was giving you just now where we kind of, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we get, we had the chance to stipulate everything's the same and they were both equally skilled shooters and they had, you know, equal distance from their targets and everything. Um, mm-hmm. and in, in real life, um, things are much mess, messier usually. And so I think it's understandable, maybe even in some cases reasonable to take the outcome to be evidence of a kind of um, intent or wholeheartedness or something like that, at least in the case of intentional harm. So I think often people read back from a successful murder and think, well, they were really trying. Um, Whereas um, in the case of attempted murder, often people might think, well, gosh, you didn't try hard enough or you weren't really trying. So that's, that's actually <laughs> in, a, in, in, a, in a sort of good way. That's like, oh, well, that's good. You didn't have such a bad, um, you didn't have such a bad intent anyway. And so maybe, maybe that's why we sort of typically think these are different. The typical successful murder is worse than the typical, or sorry, is more blameworthy than typical attempted murder if it's more wholehearted, say. Um but once you really, you know, keep everything the same in the two cases, when we really imagine clear cases, which, of course, you know, philosophers are good at doing, trying to really, you know, stipulate everything else is the same. The only thing that's different is something not in your control, um, you know, like the bird swooping in. Um, once we really, really imagine that case, um, I think the the temptation to blame them differentially really starts to disappear. Um, it does for me, I will say. And I think it's true for a lot of people, um, not everyone. Um, and then, uh, and in the negligence ca- cases too, I mean, once you start thinking, God, it's just a matter of luck, you know, whether somebody, uh, you know, caused a, a set of infections and another person mm-hmm. didn't, it's, they both start to seem equally blameworthy, um, at least to me. Um, so, so one strategy is to try to point out that, you know, um, 
in real life cases, um, there may be another explanation of our differential blame, blaming practices than that we really are um, letting something that's not in one's control of affect the degree of blameworthiness. Um, so, so that so one sort of strategy is just this strategy to try to say how real life cases might be explained in different ways, and that once we really fix on the the right cases, that the apparent conflict between the control principle and our reactions to the cases will dissolve. So that's that's one kind of strategy on the denial um, of outcome luck. Um, we can try to do the the same things with other kinds of luck and deny that moral luck exists. I I'm like probably showing my cards here, but I think it's more <laughs> difficult difficult to do it in in the other in when it comes to the other kinds of moral luck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we go back to Nagel's example of the 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 two people. Um, the person who, you know, turns in his neighbors in Nazi Germany and the person who doesn't, it gets, it's, it does become more difficult to think, um, or that intuition may be less strong. I mean, it is very disturbing, I'll admit, um, <laughs> to, th to think about, oh gosh, maybe we all in those circumstances, not, maybe not we all, but many of us would have acted really, really badly. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's it, the grace of God go I. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This is kind of a little side note, but have you seen The Man in the High Castle? No. But so it like it's I a should. TV show on Netflix, and the main character is this guy named Smith. And the story is that we lost World War II, and the Nazis took over the eastern half of the United States. And he was a, a soldier in the United States Army. And once the Nazis took over, they gave all of the officers a chance to come over to the Nazi side and become officers in the Nazi army. And he took that chance. And part of the story is there's this alternate universe in which the Nazis didn't take over. And his character, his counterpart in that other universe is just like a normal person who works a nine to five, loves his family and never commits any atrocities. But in the universe, in the story, he becomes a Nazi and commits lots of atrocities. So it's kind of like a, I don't know if the writers had read an angle. <laughs> but it's like it really sounds example. like it. Yeah. yeah. It's based on a novel yeah. by uh, the sci-fi writer Philip K. Dick, who has a lot of philosophical themes in his writing. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was familiar with the puzzle here. Yeah, I don't oh, know yeah. how, how accurate the show is to the book, but yeah, I'm sure... Yeah, I know that writer. That's really cool. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, yeah, that's a that's the perfect illustration of this. Um, <laughs> so so it is disturbing, which of course makes it a really good TV show. Um, but it um, or a good premise certainly. Um, but I think it really does. That we're sort of stretching now to think that they're equally blameworthy, but. Um, but one can make this case, as some people have. Michael Zimmerman has a really creative, uh, wonderful paper called Taking Luck Seriously, I think that's the title, um, in which he sort of takes us step by step. Well, if you're going to 
deny moral luck and treat the attempted murder and the successful murder the same. Um, you should do the same. You know, you should you, you should also treat these two um, characters uh, similarly. You should blame them equally as well. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah, so this this is I think this is a very live strategy. So there are certainly folks who uh, argue that um, we should deny moral luck in all of these cases. I think even even uh, Zimmerman says this might not work or might not work for all all kinds of luck. It might not work in the constitutive case be, because there might be. Um, uh, it might be that it's it's not the case that we can really make sense of the idea that um, uh, y- you would have done <laughs> you would have done this bad thing if you had had different traits altogether. Maybe it wouldn't have been you in that case. So mm-hmm. the the kind yeah, of counter, yeah. counterfactual doesn't make sense. Um, but uh, but so I think it's a really interesting question: How far can this denial strategy go? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so there are certainly ways to ways to do it. <laughs> um, let's see. The then there are folks who accept all kinds of moral luck. They're really kind. Of, this is kind of recategorizing things from the way you asked the question. But there are those who accept all kinds of moral luck. There are those who deny all kinds of moral luck, or as much as you can get. Um, and then there are ones who try to kind of accept some and deny others. Um, and interestingly, I think the two more extreme views, um, uh, they sort of have arguments that are mere images or flip sides of each other. So for f- the, the, the argument I was just um, offering that takes the denial strategy to its, to its extreme and denies all kinds of moral luck um, ends up with a really radical conclusion, namely that we're all equally blameworthy and praiseworthy because we all would have done the bad thing or the good thing in the, you know, had things been different, had the world been different in some way that was not in our control. Um, so, so that's, that's a super interesting, cool argument. The, the mere image of that is, um, sorry, just to go back for a second. So one way of getting to that conclusion is just to say, well, there's no real principled place to stop once you, deny outcome luck, you should also deny circumstantial luck. And so you should deny every kind of luck. But the flip side of that argument is to say, well, there's luck everywhere. Um, there's that you can get rid of all of it. No, you know, very few people think you can get rid of all of it because we can't, no person can create themselves. Um, so, uh, fully from nothing. So, mm-hmm. Um, so there's got to be luck somewhere. So luck is going to influence what we do in some way or other. And then why, you know, again, where would you, where, why should you stop? So maybe these original um, intuitions that we started with, you know, that, well, it does matter whether you've caused harm or not to how blameworthy you are. Uh, maybe we should just accept that. Um, so the the mere image argument is just to say, well, if you're going to allow certain kinds of luck, why stop? Why you know why stop there? Why not also allow outcome luck um, to play a role? So so there you have a kind of mere image of that argument. Um, 
And and I think it is a challenge. I mean, I guess my own view is that we should accept some and not others. But I take the point and the really hard challenge to be to explain why um, why we should resist accepting certain kinds and not others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, I have one question. Um, to what extent does this debate depend on um, different senses or kinds of moral re- responsibility? Uh, like I have the, the, like here's one way of framing the question. Some people say that we're only responsible for like the consequences of our actions or states of affairs or something like that. And other people say that we're responsible for maybe like the quality of our will or our character. Mm-hmm. Um, so does the debate depend on a distinction like that? That's that's a great question. I think that it certainly can. And I think that what answers you give to, to your questions can inform answers about moral luck, for sure. Um, it's also possible, I think, that in some cases you might be able to abstract for some, from some of those questions. Um, but... Um, but yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. So, for example, I mean, on my own view, um, the sort of the the, uh, the focus of what we're responsible for is what we do or don't do with our opportunities, and so mm-hmm. that having that view. Um, that one can be blameworthy for acting badly when you have a decent opportunity to act well, um, having that view can lead to a certain view about what sorts of moral luck is allowable and what's not. So on this view, there can be lots of luck in what gets you to your opportunities. But then if you really do have a decent opportunity, one or a good enough quality opportunity, Um, What you do with that or don't do with it um, uh, can make you praiseworthy or blameworthy. So there can be constitutive luck and circumstantial luck as long as it leaves you um, with a good enough opportunity. Then how you act, you will determine your blameworthiness or praiseworthiness. Um, But I think that doesn't make you accept outcome luck um, because mm-hmm. that's that's not that's not about what you're in control of in taking your opportunities or not so yeah absolutely I think that makes a huge your position about what free free irresponsible action is about or requires or what the object of it is can lead to one or another view on this question. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who think that the problem of moral luck just sort of can't be solved without giving up the conception of ourselves as morally responsible for what we do. I guess would this fit mm-hmm. into your denial category where you say, yeah, moral luck doesn't affect praiseworthiness and blameworthiness just because we're never praiseworthy or right. blameworthy. Um, yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's got, I guess, I guess that's right. I guess, hmm, I have to think about that. Is that a denial case? 
Yes, I think that would be a denial case. But sometimes when you deny something, you're you're implying that it made sense to ask or something right. um, in in a way that the uh, the skeptic about responsibility might say. Well, if you say something like, you know, uh, is this person more responsible than that person? And then we say no. Um, that's cons- it's consistent with the idea that nobody's responsible at all. Right, but it sure. might it might kind of suggest that right. there is such a thing that we can compare people along um, right. that that dimension. But yeah, I think that's right. Right. It'd be I a mean, very different response than just saying that uh, we are responsible, but uh, not yeah, luck doesn't affect our degree of responsibility. That's right. That's right. That's right. But it is true that, I mean, one way of reading Nagel is that he sort of talks himself into a kind of skepticism at, at one point um, mm. because he, he just can't see. He said it's very it's a it's a very sort of dark article. He says, I just there, there may be no solution to this problem. And um, and he yeah. seems to he seems to go there. Of course, I should say some people think this is a great thing. Um, I'm sure you'll talk to um, skeptics about free will and moral responsibility, right. but um, mm-hmm. you are talking to them. But, um, uh, but of course, s- some people like me think that would be really bad. Right. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but other people, other people think that that would be great, or that's or or it's not so bad as we think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, could you say a little bit about the the other option, the incoherence response to moral luck? Sure. So this one, I think, is best targeted at constitutive luck. Um, So actually, this goes back to something we were just talking about a a little bit ago. So some have argued that it just doesn't even make sense in a way, um, or it's incoherent to ask whether it's a matter of luck who you are, um, because you couldn't have been anything else. You wouldn't be you if you... um, if you were so different. Um, uh, But at at the end of the day, I think this may really sort of be a species of the acceptance view in disguise. um, Because um, especially if we sort of translate the idea that um, something being a matter of luck is something not in your control, then I think it is in a way to say, yeah, we don't control a lot about um, who we are, at least early on. Um, and yet, um, on this view, we can still be responsible for lots of things. So, so I think that the, the incoherence idea is an interesting one. Um, but in a way, I think it, it might really be a species of the acceptance view in, Uh at the end of the day. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with us. This was so interesting. I love talking about moral luck. Where can listeners go to follow your work and and read more about this? Um, So one place is uh, the article that Taylor mentioned, which is the Stanford Encyclopedia of of Philosophy um, site. It's um, it's a great resource. Everything's free on the internet, um, and you can just type in Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Moral Luck for that. Um, and then um, my website is danaknelkin.com. 
Perfect. And we'll link both of those things in the show notes. We've referred to a few different um, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entries before. Very helpful. Okay, Thanks great. again, Dana, for being on the show. This is this was awesome. Um, our next episode, this was the, the oh, last wait. interview. Hey, Taylor, oh. can I sorry? Can oh, yeah, I thank no, you? Can I thank you all too? <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, you can cut you can cut that little part out, but um, I, I I do just want to thank the two of you so much for having me on. That was that was really fun and I really appreciate it. This is a great show. Uh, thanks so much, Dana. That means a lot. Yeah. Uh, so stay tuned for our, our next and final episode of season one. Uh, we won't have a guest um, being interviewed, but we'll have a Q&A with listener questions. So if you're listening to this around the time that w- the episode drops, uh, send us a question as soon as you can, either through the website or through social media. And stay tuned for that Q&A episode.